the passage is Acts chapter 12. And we'll read the whole chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what he was, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blasters, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Oh, thank you, Kai. Uh, thanks for leading us in that reading. It'd be really great to keep your Bible open there at Acts chapter 12. 
Uh, if you're new or you've been away for a while, we are making our way through this uh, wonderful book of Acts, uh, the story of the ongoing work of the Lord Jesus uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. And uh, it's this chapter that we're up to today. Uh, if you get our newsletter, you should have received um, in there a link to either an outline that you can download, and that, that outline has some discussion questions at the bottom of it, um, and also a kid sheet. Uh, so younger people, if you want to, you can follow along there, answer a few questions that we, as we go, and then do an activity on the back um, afterwards as well. Now, if you're interested in Australian political history, and I'm not sure how big that group is in our church, but if you are interested, then you've probably had quite an exciting week. Because on Tuesday, a package of correspondence was released called the Palace Letters. Uh, they were the record of communication between uh, the then Governor General, Sir John Kerr, and Buckingham Palace. Correspondence which ultimately ended in the Governor General's sacking of the Whitland government. And this is probably uh, one of the most radical things that our country has seen in its political history. Even more radical than the revolving door of prime ministers we've enjoyed for the last 10 years. And it's raised the question in our country again, uh, even in the midst of this pandemic, about what role the royal family or the monarchy should play in our society. Well, if you went back to the time of the early church, that question wasn't particularly being asked or wrestled with because you really didn't have a say. If there was a king, well, they were in charge and nobody questioned that. And at this time, you have Caesar in, in Rome, uh, who was considered lord, uh, boss in control. And there were local kings in areas and rulers. And as long as they didn't, uh, felt, as long as they fell in line with Caesar in Rome, well, they were in charge of their area. But into this environment, you have this new movement of people who have recently become known as Christians. And they're a problem because they claim that it's not Caesar who is Lord and it's not Herod who is King, but it's Jesus. It's not governments who rule, and it's not governments that people are answerable to. It's the Jesus who came, lived, performed miracles, died, rose again, and now reigns over heaven and earth. And in this passage, we have the beginnings of that clash, of that tension, of that conflict taking place. It's a conflict which continues throughout history and it continues in the world today. And so how this is resolved, how believers act, how God acts, well, that's important for us today as well. Now, when we left chapter 11 last week, Paul and Barnabas had left Antioch in the north and they had come down to Jerusalem to bring an offering to a church that was struggling. And it appears that they are still there at this time. Chapter 12 starts about that time. So about that time they came down. And it finishes at the end of chapter 12 with Barnabas and Saul bringing Mark with them back to Antioch. 
But while they are there, a new round of persecution takes place. Now, persecution, we've seen persecution already in the book of Acts. Uh, it has come mostly up until this point from the Jewish religious leaders. In coming chapters, it will come from city leaders, it will come from business people, and it will come from other religions. We've already seen beatings and imprisonments and even the death of Stephen. But this persecution, this opposition is from a new source. It's from Herod the king. Now, Herod comes in the middle of a family line, family tree of Bible characters, and none of them are known for their particularly great dealings with God's work. Uh, Herod's grandfather was Herod the Great, and he was king when Jesus was born, and he was the one responsible for having all those baby boys slaughtered at that time. Herod's father, Herod Antipas, was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and was also involved in washing his hands when Jesus was on trial. This Herod's son, who will be Herod Agrippa II, will later be involved in the trial of Paul and responsible for sending him to Rome. That is not a great family tree to be a part of. And this Herod seems to have inherited his ancestors' desire for blood and their extreme paranoia. He is an extremely insecure king. So what we read him doing is he, he, he violently lays hands on some who belong to the church. He, he arrests them. And in that, he puts James, the apostle, to death. And this is popular. I mean, the people love this. The Jewish people love this. And being an insecure king, he thinks, great, I'm going to do that again because people love me. And so this time he arrests Peter with the plan that he will bring him out at the time of the Passover, uh, about 40 days later, and presumably also put him to death. He has Peter held in prison. He's guarded by about 40 soldiers. And we have set up here a pretty grim situation for Peter and for the church in Jerusalem. Now, as we read this, and as we read many of the, the, the times of opposition and persecution in the book of Acts, we're to be reminded that opposition to God and his work and his people, it exists in this world and it exists in many different ways and in many different forms. Opposition to God, his work, and his people is commonplace in our world today. It can come from many different sources, and one of those sources is from rulers and governments who are looking for popular approval. You see, we have a, a, a very tricky and a very nuanced relationship with those who are in authority over us. We're called to submit to them and pray for them. We're called to be good citizens. We're to, we're to participate in the political process in our country. 
And at this moment, in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, as much as ever, we should be submitting to and praying for and participating. But at the same time, we need to be cautious and wary because things can change. Governments aren't always friends of the church and doing good for the gospel. Popular opinion can swing and we shouldn't expect that governments will always be on our side. And for many Christians around the world, this is true. They live under opposition and persecution from their government and we should stand with them and pray for them and support them. But we should also not be naive. We've even seen things in our own country, in our own state in the last decade that have made it harder for Christians, for us, to live out and practice our faith. While we are focused on one thing at the moment, we should not ignore that other things are taking place. We should continue to support and pray for and submit to, but we need to do it being watchful. Well, apart from being wary and watchful then, how does this church respond? How does God respond? Well, it's interesting that after describing uh, the situation that's going on for Peter in this, this early church, there's a but. It's there halfway through verse 5. And it's a really important but. Let me read it to you. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. How does the church respond to this threat, to this opposition? Well, it prays and it prays earnestly to God. And this isn't a once-off in the book of Acts, is it? This, we see this over and over again. We see this when the church is opposed, when people are arrested, when they're told to stop preaching. What does the church do? It prays. It brings it to God. And even when the church is not being opposed, we so often find it prayerful to God. And a little later on in this chapter, Luke tells us what this earnest prayer looks like. We find in the middle of the night, on the night before Peter's to be possibly put to death, this church is, is gathered together in the middle of the night praying to God for his relief. You see, while Herod acts as king, the church recognizes that there is one who really is in control, who is sovereign, who is Lord. While there are governments who might set themselves up in opposition, there is one who is described as king of kings and lord of lords, and compared to him, they are nothing. This is what prayer is recognizing. It's the humble approach to the one who has the last say. It's submission to the one who reigns and who rules. And the more that we get that, the more we appreciate that, the more we too will be people of earnest prayer. Over the last, one of the things that's been bothering me over the last couple of weeks, uh, 
and something that I and, and we need to do something about this uh, is that we don't have at the moment as a church uh, a forum for us to pray together as a whole church. Now, this is not something that we were particularly healthy at uh, before. Uh, if we are honest, um, it's one of the areas of church life that we're, we're not great in. We've had for the last several years a, a monthly prayer meeting on a, on a Sunday morning, but there's been more than one occasion where I've sat there on my own or we've just had a handful of people. And at the moment, this is, this is even less. And how does this happen? I mean, I, I bet if I was to put out on a survey, you know, is prayer important in the life of the church? I think I'd struggle to find anybody that would say no. We all believe, we all know that prayer is important. But yet it often struggles to translate into prayer. Well, I, I think there are three, three causes of this, and maybe many times this is interrelated. And the first one is that we, we think far too much of ourselves. If we think we can handle it, if we think we can do it, if we think we can accomplish it, then why would you pray? Secondly, we don't take seriously enough the opposition to God's work in our lives, in our church, and in the wider world. We don't appreciate that there is one out there like a roaring lion, as Peter will describe him later, looking for someone to devour. And thirdly, we have too limited an appreciation for the greatness of God. We think too little of him. You see, here something awful happens. Something, something devastating. James has been put to death. Peter might go that way as well. And there's nothing they can do about it. They can't storm the prison. They can't petition the king. And so they do the first and the only thing that they can. They pray. You see, church, we, we need an appreciation of how we can do nothing without the Lord Jesus. We need an appreciation of the magnitude of what that which stands in opposition to God and his work. We need to appreciate that we can do nothing for the exance of the gospel in our own strength. No amount of work or trying or slaving or unity will accomplish it. Because it's the work of God from start to finish. We have one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's, he's made a way open for us to pray. He helps us when we pray. He hears our prayers. He loves his people. He loves the work of the gospel. And he's powerful. And he works. And he acts. Now, while we can't meet together, we, we might struggle to find ways of, of praying as a whole church. And we can look for some ways, and we, we should do that. But when our groups 
get together week by week, our growth groups and our, our youth groups and our, and our kids groups. We have a chance to be a church who submits itself to God and who recognises his greatness and who is about an earnest prayer for his work in us, in one another, and in the work of the gospel. At home, individually, and as families, we have a chance each and every day to recognise our need and our dependence on God and his work. And to be a church, to be a people of earnest prayer. See, I don't think there's any coincidence here in this chapter that this little statement about the church is wedged between a description of what Herod does and then a description of what God does. The link between them is a church that is praying. Well, how God does God act? Well, he acts incredibly and he acts powerfully. In verse 6, we're told that Herod was about to bring him out. It's the night before. And Peter is asleep between two soldiers. He's bound with change. There's sentries at the door. There's more sentries guarding the prison. And what happens? Well, God acts. An angel appears. He, he has to kind of hit Peter quite strongly. It strikes him to wake him up. His chains fall off. Doors open. The prison opens. And it is clear from start to finish that this is the work of God and God alone. P Peter's, Peter's passive in the whole thing. He doesn't even believe it's happening. He thinks he's dreaming at the time. It's not until he makes it out into the street that he suddenly realizes, hang on, this was God rescuing me from the hand of Herod. Even the church that is praying for him can't even believe it. Peter has to keep banging away on the, on the gate of the house until they finally come and open the door for him. Because this was God's work. Incredibly and miraculously from beginning to end. And you notice the result there? Uh, there it's down in verse uh, 16. When Peter's standing in front of them, in front of this, this praying church, they were amazed. It, it's the same, same word that happens so many times in the Gospels. When Jesus performs a miracle or he, or he teaches, the people were amazed. He's demonstrated his power. He's demonstrated his concern for his church. And people are amazed. See, the Lord Jesus is passionate about the spread of the gospel. He's passionate about the message going out into this world. He's passionate about lives being transformed, his people knowing him and proclaiming him. And he is working powerfully to that end. Remember what this book's about. All that Jesus continues to do and teach by the power of the Holy Spirit through the witness of the church. And this is why we pray. And we pray earnestly. This is why we turn to God again and again. Because he's passionate 
about the work of the gospel. This is why we pray for his work in our lives of, of renewing us and refining us and, and, and making us holy. This is why we pray for his work with one in one another, uh, growing us in Christ-likeness, praying for unity in the church, praying for, for love and care. This is why we pray for, for, for co-workers and family members and friends and neighbours, why we pray for opportunities to speak and for God to open up hearts because he is the God who acts and acts powerfully for the work of the gospel. Now, we do need to be careful with this chapter because there is this wonderful prayer which is answered by God, but there is also a prayer we assume that was unanswered because while Peter was rescued, James was not. James, the disciple, one of the, the inner three uh, of disciples, uh, one who was close to Jesus, is put to death, and all he gets is a 12-word epitaph in this chapter. It's brushed over very quickly. See, prayer is not demanding of God. And prayer is not done thinking that we have all the answers or know what is best. It's done humbly and it's done in submission. It's always praying, your will be done. Because it is praying to the one who is Lord and who is King and who knows best. But just quickly, let's finish soon but realize that this is not the end of the story here. Peter is set free, but there is still Herod. And Herod is furious. The next morning, uh, there's a disturbance amongst the soldiers, as you can imagine. Hang on, weren't you supposed to, what, where is he gone? They search for him, they can't find him. And Herod is mad. He is an insecure king trying to boost his reputation with people and he has been humbled and humbled badly. And so he has all of the centuries put to death. But it's still not the end. We're now told that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and he goes down and he receives an envoy from them who are suing for peace. And in response to them, he makes this wonderfully great speech. It must have, been, must have been a really, really good speech because the people cry out and they know how insecure he is. The voice of a God and not of a man. And this insecure king thinks, great, they love me again. But then God acts. And this time he acts with Herod. And while Herod might be insecure and populist, he has set himself up in opposition to the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that will not stand. We remember earlier in the book of Acts, we had the story of Ananias and Sapphira whose judgment came uh, immediately and they fell down dead. 
And we said at that time that at times and at places, God brings the time of judgment, the end of time judgment forward into the present day and he acts decisively as a demonstration. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, that demonstration was to the church that God is a holy God, that you don't treat the church lightly. But here it happens again. And this time I think it's meant to be an encouragement to the church. God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. God will bring those who stand in opposition to him, those who oppress, who kill, who harm his people, he will bring them to judgment. It may be soon. It may be at the end of time, but they will not go unpunished. Because one day, his kingdom will be the only kingdom left standing. His kingdom and his reign of peace and justice and righteousness will be all that there is. Now, when God acted the first time, people were amazed. When God acts this time, there's another result. It's there in verse 24. It's a refrain that we read many times throughout the book of Acts. But the word of God increased and multiplied. In the midst of opposition, there is hope for the people of God. There is the hope of, of a day of judgment, the day when Christ returns, when all wrongs will be put right. But there's also the hope that his word, his gospel, will not be stopped. His work will not be thwarted. He will continue it on to the end. Let's pray together, church. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reign and you rule in this world. We thank you that you are bringing about your kingdom of peace, of justice, of righteousness into this world. Thank you, Lord, that as the gospel goes out, you are bringing people in to be part of your kingdom and your family forever. Lord God, prepare us for opposition. Prepare us for times of discouragement and times where the work seems hard and fruitless. Prepare us by reminding us that you are in control, that you reign and you rule, and that your kingdom will come. We prayed for that, Lord. We pray that your kingdom would come in our lives, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our country. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.